I also made the case for owning Bitcoin, the quintessence of scarcity premium. Scarcity premium. It's literally the only large tradable asset in the world that has a known fixed maximum supply by its design. The total quantity of Bitcoins cannot exceed 21 million. Bitcoin is the hardest money that has ever been invented. If you don't have my private key, you cannot spend my Bitcoin, period. And this is the power of Bitcoin. So it's the first time we figured out how to create true property that you can take possession of with full custodial rights. Hey, what's going on, everyone? And welcome to another episode of Talking of Bits, where we walk you through Bitcoin bit by bit so we can provide you with the information you need to succeed and persist. Back with episode 82, and I'm very excited to have Jason Rich in the house. And Jason, shake a rancher's hand is real deal. And uh, last weekend in Bluffton, I got to shake your hand and it was awesome conversation. I wanted to have you on the show. Thank you for your time, man. How's it going? It's fantastic. And, and thank you so much for having me on. Of course, the priority of so much of what I do is education. And so the more I can get out, you know, spread the signal, help more young people. And uh, thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. It's an honor, man. Like I said, I, you know, I went from just a simple handshake to saying hello. And I'm not going to lie, man, you were uh, a little bit intimidating from a distance. I was like, I don't know if I want to uh, talk to Jason. And then all that went away as soon as you and I started talking. And I was like, oh, no, Jason's just a real one. So, uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. And that's just it. You know, it, it's uh, I, I do my best to be as approachable as possible. And, and I try and let that outgoing kind of nature flow. But, but as you said, a lot of people, especially in this day and age, they're afraid to start that conversation. So I oftentimes have to initiate um, just to get the ball rolling. Yeah, so you're doing people like me a favor by initiating combo. So we're not suckers out here, just not. <laughs> but it's all good. I'm glad you did. But, and- Right. And we're not teaching our kids. We're not teaching our kids to communicate. You know what I mean? My kids both, they'll go right up to someone, look them in the eye and shake their hand. And that's the thing that we preach, you know, to our kids and also through the beef initiatives is you've got to get out and, and get back to our roots the way our grandparents did, the way our parents did. You got to get out there and put yourself out there um, because the more you do that, the more you empower young people, old people, everything to get back to that real face-to-face communication. Yeah. Oh, now that you say that. So and let me ask you uh, a question. Are your kids homeschooled? Nope. Public no. school, but I'm, but I'm very involved in school. And so the, 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 the flip side of that is we did the groundwork before they ever went to school to set them up for success. I volunteer in school a lot and I hear parents belly ache about, Oh, this teacher did this. Oh, this teacher did that. And the first thing I say is that's because you didn't do the groundwork at home before you sent your kids to school to teach them what they needed to go to school and be successful. And that's respect as well as being a, a, you know, stand up for themselves. So if there's something going on that they don't like, whether it's between the kids or the teachers or principals or whatever, they have to have enough confidence to stand up and say, Hey, you know, I don't agree with this. Be respectful, but you can have that conversation. Yeah. That's a great example. I only asked because I was talking to Ann while I was out there from Holy cow. And I had a big, um, I, I had a, I have a, you know, we just started homeschooling our kids this year and I had like a big issue with, you know, I don't think my little one, my 11 year old is getting enough interaction with other kids. Um, and the the reason I kind of wanted to ask you is because one thing that she did say is, is that it's actually a strength as opposed to a weakness because homeschool kids, 
tend to be the ones that'll shake somebody's hand and look them dead in the eye because they have more adult interaction than your typical kid in school. So that, that's why I was asking. Absolutely. And that's our kids are, were the only grandkids on my wife's side of the family for a long time. So from the time that they were little, it was almost all adult interactions, which is good and bad because we're holding them to a higher standard, not realizing you just got to let kids be kids. Right. Yeah, that, that was a big part. That, exactly. I wanted my daughter to, she's a social butterfly, wanted to her to be around other kids. And I'm not trying to, you know, justify completely with what Ann told me, but it did actually make sense because if you look at my, my little one, she's actually mature for her age, right? And she would not fear to go up to an adult and actually talk to them and be energetic as she's supposed to. So it's a strength for sure. Absolutely. For sure. Okay, cool. So we kind of just jumped in there, but just to backtrack here, <laughs> which is awesome. Uh, just to backtrack a little bit, Jason, just for the listeners that may not know who you are. Uh, I may not know what you're, what you're doing or what you're about. Can you just please kind of circle back and just let the listeners know a bit about yourself, please? Sure. So my name is Jason Rick. Uh, my family and I are a first-generational uh, regenerative cattle ranch. We focus on Black Angus genetics and then providing that direct to consumer. Um, and then, of course, now we're also uh, charter members of the Beef Initiative, which is a fantastic organization that we're working to protect um, food rights, food sovereignty, also financial rights, financial sovereignty, and also to kind of decentralize food across the nation. And that all leads back to human health. And so a big focus for us and for myself particularly is education. I spend a lot of time talking to people about the importance of regenerative agriculture as far as, you know, saving the environment or whatever it is that your focus is, but also the importance of pure animal protein in their diet. And that that gets back to shake your rancher's hand like we talked about before. But the other thing too is is helping people educate themselves on Bitcoin, the power of Bitcoin, what decentralized money does for them and how they can have that as part of their life and their lifestyle because cattle ranchers are low time preference folks. Like we will have 30 months in a process before we can produce beef that goes on your plate from the time that the cow conceives all the way to calving and then finishing those beeves is totally low time preference, which is a perfect marriage with Bitcoin because it's the same kind of thing. You got to slow down, step back, regroup and really prioritize what your focus should be on. And so that's that's kind of us. I, I'm super involved in the community. I'm on you know nine different boards of directors, whether it's ag, whether it's um, water, whether it is um, youth support organizations, all of those things, just because we lost a lot of that. You know, it used to be civic duty was to be involved. And so some of those boards, I'm the youngest guy, some of those boards, I'm the oldest guy. But nevertheless, we have fantastic conversations and we're always looking to share that information and, and help build up other people. Um, and that, that's why it's been such a blessing for me to be part of the beef initiative and everything that, that uh, slim is doing and just getting the word out because I mean, the following continues to grow business continues to grow and then human health is improving because people are focusing on 
eating real food and getting back to the way that their parents, grandparents, and great-grandparents ate. And so that's, it's just super important and it's a passion of mine. Yeah, so the, I could tell it's a passion of yours. So if we if you were to like dial back even further back in your life, this had to stem from somewhere. So you said it's civic duty. You're always, you're not selfish, basically. You're always in for the other neighbor, human being, whatever it may be with all these things that you just highlighted. Where do you think that comes from from you? Was that passed on by your parents? Was that an event in your life that happened that made you so focused on civil duty? Well, that's how I was raised. I mean, my dad was an underground coal miner, and but he always made time for us and he made time for other people. So he was always giving of himself. He was our, our t-ball coach, baseball coach, soccer coach. He was involved in Cub Scouts and Boy Scouts, all of those things, you know, that used to be a high priority. So I saw him not realizing it then, but just realizing how important it was to have that in your life and how important some of the young people that didn't have positive male role models could look up to him and just how important that is. And now that we've gotten into the generation of a lot of broken homes and a lot of single parents, that's one thing that I, I really pride myself in is helping some of those young men have a positive male role model and, um, and instill in them some of my priorities and also some of my skills. You know, I've had a couple of young men come and work for me that then took what they learned here on the ranch and then go out and start their own businesses. Um, I've, I've helped young people start their own direct-to-consumer uh, grass-fed and grass-finished beef operations as well because healthy competition is really what we need. And I there's way more market demand than I can supply. And the more people that we can get into it that are managing the land the way that I prioritize, the better off we are all around. Um, I, I got my bug in agriculture from my grandfather on my mom's side. Um, Albert Martinez was his name. They had a small family farm. I started going over there in the summers to help out during haying season and whatnot. And um, he did it the way that his grandfather did it. He didn't believe in synthetic fertilizer. Um, it was all about what I later termed observational science, because he was out in the field. He would look at the plants, he would look at the animals, what their condition, what their behavior, and then he would adjust what he did according to what mother nature told him. And that's where I've been. So many people focus on synthetic inputs and purchased inputs and soil analysis and forage analysis and so many things where you can do that if you get back to what your intuition, what your gut tells you. And so many people are looking for a number on a paper. Um, and what I have found is oftentimes that's a waste of money. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. I do soil analysis so I can tell someone else that we're improving soil carbon, that we're in improving you know, the humus and the soil and, and biological um, processes that are improving in the soil. And also I, I do forage analysis to make sure that I am matching the quality of feed to the, the classification of cattle that I'm feeding. So I'm not wasting money on hay, but oftentimes you can tell by looking at them if they're getting enough of what they need or if they need a little bit more, if you train your eye to it. And so 
that, I mean, my grandfather, when he was a young man, used to farm with horses. They would hay with horses, you know, mow hay and rake hay and stack hay with horses. And he tells just some fantastic stories of that. I wish that I had sat down and recorded some of those stories because other than in my memory, that's all that's left. Yeah, but is it is it safe to say that with your teachings, like you said, like the the young men that came to you, whatever, you can actually pass on that legacy, not only to your own children, but to others as well? It's totally accurate. And that's I think that's a big motivator for me for why I, I try so hard. Yeah, to keep it alive. And then in your situation, I have the benefit of many others to record these conversations. <laughs> and we could keep Absolutely. that going. Absolutely. And that's the thing for me is... Um, the more venues that I'm involved in, the larger the following is, the bigger the impact I can have on more people's lives, whether maybe it's just pushing them to start their own regenerative farm, whether it's pushing them to go find a farmer's market, get out, shake the rancher's hand, because the margins in what I do are, are razor thin. I mean, you have one bad day, you have a sick cow, or you have a, a tractor breakdown that can potentially erode your entire profit for the entire year. And yeah. so, you know, I've, I've had people reach out to me and say, you should be being paid just for building soil, just for the education that you do. That's one of the amazing things about, you know, the fountain app. It's one of those things that you give opportunity to, to pay you stream saps to you boost you, um, because they find value in what you're doing. And that's everything that the, you guys are doing that are feeding that information into that system. I completely commend you because I oftentimes don't feel like I have the time or resources to do it. And that's why I love what you guys do. Um, taking the time of putting it out there and, and spreading the signal. Yeah. Well, that, that means a lot. Um, I'm sure to anybody listening, who's doing podcasting, podcasting, um, just to make a comparison, um, it may not be as hard as ranching, I'm sure, uh, but it is a very low time preference thing, right? A lot of podcasters wouldn't even get listeners until maybe episode 150, episode 200, right? Never mind an actual following. And then before, in the previous model, before Value for Value, uh, it was a, a fruitless labor, meaning that like, unless you had a sponsor, unless you had some type of ads or something like that, there's no way that you were getting reimbursed for the time that you were putting in. Um, I like to tell the story a lot here. So before talking in bits, I had the Jose Burgos podcast and I went 135 episodes in without making a single penny. Um, now that shows me that I love to do what I do, right? That's why I kept going. That's why I eventually turned into talking in bits. But now that we have, value for value, which is basically like what you just said, which is, hey, I'm going to put my best foot forward. You guys can watch it if you so deem so and experience it. You can take this information and then you can decide what it is that you want to give me in return, if anything at all, because I'm still going to be here even if you put nothing in. Um, and, and I think that in that sense, low time preference for podcasters is very important for any creator, really, because there's so much distraction out there that if you're in it for the money or you're in it to like, you know, for clout, you're going to fail every single time. You have to do it because you like it and because you like to have these conversations and be the conduit of information, which is what I call myself. And, and that's totally accurate. And that's that's the thing that's been amazing for me is I think I've been on 
six or seven or eight maybe podcasts and some of them multiple times because they wanted to continue the conversation because they felt it was important enough that we had left out enough stuff. We'd left enough stuff on the table that their listeners needed the rest of the story. And that's just amazing to me to be able to do that. Yeah. And the decentralized nature of podcasting, it's the last free medium where you can say whatever it is that you want to say. Uh, and that's extremely important in a day and age where, you know, you can get censored immediately for saying the wrong thing or for stepping on an advertiser's toes. Um, so I agree with you. These conversations are, you know, uh, endless. You can have them as many times as you want. And the pure information that people are getting, which is the message that you're sharing, the message that Slim is sharing and so many others can only really travel on podcast, right? It can't travel on YouTube because they're going to kill it. You can't just go to CNN and NBC or anything like that because they're going to wash it and do something else with it. But if you jump on my podcast, maybe a Joe Rogan podcast, maybe something like that, that message travels clean and pure. And then whoever wants to adopt it can adopt it. And whoever doesn't, then they could just keep being a zombie, I guess. <laughs> that's right. And that's one of those things that I say is we're building an arc yeah. on the beef initiative, you know, and there's people who are finding value in it. And then we're working with them and value for value to build out the different segments of it. So they will all have a place on the arc. And that's the amazing thing about this system is it works and people are waking up to the fact that it works. And so sure, early on, it was like, we're crazy, right? You know, Slim and I talking on the phone and I'm like, I don't know how this is going to work. You know, I mean, <laughs> sure. I mean, sure. I'm pouring all this energy into it, but I'm just not seeing it. And so now, I mean, we're not even a, we're not even a year in and it is, it blows my mind simply the intensity that we're getting. We're literally a locomotive pulling a whole train of cars right at the precipice, getting ready to go down the other side to where it's like, hang on for the ride because it's going to get wild. Yeah, absolutely. And I've seen that in my brief time uh, in working with y'all as well, which I'm fortunate to be able to um, take the ride with you guys, right? So you guys have built this car, you guys have built this, you know, we're heading in the right direction. And then you picked me up on the side of the road because I was like, hey guys, can I rock along with y'all? <laughs> so super humbling uh, to be underneath that. So Jason, I mean, how did we get to the point where your mission and, and your education is, is uh, vital to everyday society, right? Because one, you know, especially me, a city folk would walk into a store and just say, well, you know, who cares where this meat came from? I could buy it right there. I could just grab this. I could grab that. There's obviously an ignorance to the, the, the work of a rancher and the importance of the virtues of a rancher. How did we get here? Well, and that, that's, a, that's an interesting story. So if you go back to essentially post-World War II, um, we went with the idea that we had to feed the world. And unfortunately, the fact for feed the world meant we had all this ammonium nitrate that we were no longer going to build bombs and drop it on the bad guys. So a, a fringe benefit, or which we have come to find out is a, a super negative, is it's fantastic fertilizer. It's like giving plants cocaine, um, which ends up being completely unsustainable. Mm -hmm. But it allows you to grow plants grains in places that they never should have been cultivated because you're essentially just using the soil as a medium it's it's dead soil and you're just using it as a medium to grow grains 
So what happened with that is we built bigger and bigger equipment. So the small farmers, the diversified farmers couldn't compete with their monocrop neighbors and ended up going out of business. So then you had all of the large farms continuing to buy up all of the small farms, rip out all the fences, rip out all the chicken houses, rip out all the small granaries and small feedlots and build them into these giant conglomerate farms. You know, what we call factory farms where you have thousands and thousands of acres of monocrop. Whereas in a in an old diversified farm, you might have five acres of barley and five acres of corn, 20 acres of um, alfalfa hay, 20 acres of grass hay, and then you would grow stuff that you would feed your livestock on that or that your family would eat themselves or you would then take to town and either sell in town and trade in town. And so by the process of, of doing monocrop agriculture for so many years, so much of the soil has been degraded to the point where it is lifeless. And so through that system, everything that the humans eat and everything that the animals eat that's grown in that dead soil, their nutrient profile is less and less and less. You know, I was listening to a podcast today while I was irrigating and they were talking about how they did, they've been doing analysis on fruits and vegetables. And so oftentimes modern fruits and vegetables have a much higher sugar content, but a much lower nutrient profile, whether it's macro and micronutrients, whether it is, um, you know, vitamins and minerals, all of those things. And they gave a comparison of a lab study that they'd done with oranges. And you'd have to eat eight oranges to get the same amount of vitamins and nutrients of an orange that you could have eaten 40 years ago. Wow. And so so one of the one of the guys on the podcast made the 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 joke of, yeah, and by eating eight oranges, you would put your set yourself up for diabetes. Right. You know, because that, that's how much sugar is in it. And so if you look at it from that standpoint, those of us that are on perennial pasture, so you know, almost all of our land hasn't been plowed since the 50s or 60s. And that's by design because it is what will survive in these pastures through all of the multiple droughts that we've had. And so if you look at that, you have strong genetics in grass, strong genetics in alfalfa, clovers, legumes, forbs. It's the stuff that will that will persevere through bad weather and it survives through animal impact. Because what we're doing is intensive rotational grazing, which we have found, you know, Alan Savory went started in Africa with some experiments there and just blew everyone's mind and has gone all over the world, proving that this system of intensive grazing and then long duration rests is exactly what the plants want. And that's, that's uh, similar to what the bison would have done all across the Midwest is they would come and essentially annihilate the plants right down to the bare dirt nearly. And then they would be gone for a year and sometimes longer. And you see what happens is that stimulates the grass to grow um, super explosively because the leaves are the photosynthetic material that they need to then build roots back up. And so through that process of grazing it intensively and then going off of it, the grasses get thicker, more robust, healthier, and the, the roots go 
deeper into the soil to extract more of those vitamins and minerals that are in the soil. And it is through that process that we are allowed to build better soil, build stronger plants, and then also through building stronger plants, grow more nutrient dense pure animal protein. Whereas in a, in a, a typical, um, cow-calf operation, which then goes into a feedlot, is those calves are born, they suck on mom, eat a little bit of grass. Through that summer, they're with mom learning to eat grass. They get weaned, then they go to preconditioning where they learn how to eat out of a bunk, and then they go to a feedlot, you know, where they're crammed in really tight quarters, and they're fed what's a total mixed ration. Oftentimes, whatever is the cheapest local byproduct that they can, they can find. So oftentimes, if you're close to cotton farms, you'll have cotton seed and cotton hulls, which is a source of protein um, and also great energy. Um, if you're close to a candy factory, um, floor swept sugar and cold candy, oftentimes still in the wrapper, is ground into that total mixed ration. Oh, if you're sure. near a sawmill, you can put sawdust mixed into that. And what that is is, is like the lignin. It's like the coarse material because that's what the rumen of a cow was designed to break down is that long coarse material that humans can't eat and then um, digest it down through the four chambered stomach, um, regurgitating it, chewing the cut again, swallowing again, extracting anything good out of it, and then passing it out the back end. Um, you have places that are uh, closer to city centers. So they'll uh, oftentimes cook and, and then grind like um, old bakery goods, um, spoiled pizza dough. Um, if you're near chicken laying operations, they'll pelletize the chicken litter. So it's the sawdust, the chicken poop and the chicken feathers. And oftentimes the dead chickens, they'll pelletize that. And that's a, it's, it's nitrates, which is the basic form of proteins. And they'll use that as the protein, um, component of total mixed rations. Um, it, it, it's a, it's amazing to me what they will feed cattle unbeknownst to the consumer and and we as uninformed consumers just continue to eat and so that's why it's so important for me to to get the story out there of what we do i mean because we are literally a conception to plate operation so we raise our own registered angus bulls we turn them out on our cattle or our cows we breed cows we calve them we raise their babies um and one thing I always say is happy cows are happy beef, right? Because we're in our cattle all the time. They're tame. I mean, literally, if I walk up to them, they'll walk up to me because, number one, they usually are thinking they're going to go to a fresh pasture. And number two, I'm not a threat to them. And there's a couple of reasons for that. Number one, wild cattle get all worked up. They release all kinds of stress hormones, which is terrible for the quality of the meat. And number two crazy cows are dangerous. So that's why we're in them all the time. And, um, and we're training them for the only bad day that they're ever going to have. And the, that one bad day is when they go to the butcher. So we'll load them in a trailer. We'll take them to the butcher. We'll unload them. And they kind of look around like, this doesn't look like fresh green grass that we, sh we should be going to. They walk into the butcher and it's the only bad day that they ever have, which positively affects the quality of meat. There's no stress hormones involved. 
There's no bruising from them fighting and banging around. Um, and, and, and it's all about the eating experience. And so by doing that, we are, we are giving our consumers the highest quality protein that they can have that is raised on all perennial pastures. And that way we're not breaking out ground. It's not washing away in a rain event. It's not blowing away in the wind. Whereas, you know, a lot of grass-fed, grass-finished producers, they graze a lot of annual forage crops. So let's say they graze under a center pivot that's fallow for part of the year. And so someone is having to get out there with a tractor and drill that triticale or sorghum sudan or um, fall um, grain crops. And so you look at like soil compaction, the cost of planting the grain, the fertilizer used on that, those grain crops, those are all inputs that aren't natural to the way that the cows evolved. Whereas our focus is trying to, to, to you know, emulate what God created with the bison in the way that we manage our cattle. Yeah, so yeah. it's uh, mimicking nature as opposed to factory farming, which is just sort of like the witch and Hansel and Gretel. <laughs> it's just feeding, feeding to make them fat so that they can eat them afterwards. But not just eat them afterwards to basically uh, pull the wool over the consumer's eyes and basically say, hey, this is something you should be eating when really it's not something you should be eating. Now, well, that's we, right. Yep. That's right. right. But that's by design. So, so we've been preaching this, you know, go big or go home and in the name of efficiency. So a, a common, a common argument. And I, I typically don't argue because the people that are arguing won't listen anyways, but yeah. the argument is, is so oftentimes what we're feeding in a feedlot is stuff that would just go to the landfill otherwise. So spent brewers grains, you know, from distilleries and breweries like, well, so we're, we're doing you a service. My idea is, is put it in a compost pile and then spread it out on your perennial pastures, your native pastures and grow better grass there versus confining the cattle in a feedlot, you know, and then they say it's about efficiencies. So we're using huge equipment to combine this corn. So we're going to plow disc, um, cultivate, then harvest, haul to a granary, dry, store, grind, all back to the feedlot. So you look at all the fuel required to do that. Whereas for me, I'm stringing out poly wire on foot and stepping in posts. And when it's time to move them to the next place, I unhook the poly wire and let the cows go to the next pasture. And so for me, like my carbon footprint is very, very small. Don't get me wrong, when we haul them from the mountains back to our home place, we load them on tractor trailers and make two trips, um, but that's it. Otherwise, the cows are doing all the work on their own. And so from my point of view, you can't get any more efficient than that, you know? And the only other trip that they ever take is from there to the butcher. Other, other than going out on a delivery to take them to the consumer or the consumer comes out to the ranch because they want to see what we do here. They want to see the beautiful vistas and views that we get to look at all the time and see happy cows, you know, interact with the cattle. And so for me, it's like, it's like a, 
It's the whole system and we're able to bring that to our consumers. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, when we talk about this, um, you know, factory farming apparatus and all of the years that they've been doing, it, you said post-World War II, um, in your opinion, how, how much is this one of those good old-fashioned, you know, it was to feed the world at first and then it became intentional, or do you feel that it was intentional the whole time? Well, you know, I, I always try and look for the best in people, Yep. But if you start digging deep and and I and I recommend everyone reads Slim's um Substack on the Harvest of Deception because he digs into the big families that owned the granaries and then then subsequently own the um rights to GMO grains and the entire vertical integration of grain production all the way through the feedlots to the bakeries to the grocery stores and every part of it and so if if you read that and you go down that rabbit hole you kind of see how everything points to this one point this one subject of money um because once you can get a row crop farmer completely vested number one they've got this huge bill to the equipment dealer they've got this huge bill to the seed dealer that they can't keep their own seed because they're buying specific seed to grow a specific crop you look at their bill to the fertilizer dealer you look at their bill to the um, fuel supplier it is huge. And then you turn around and look at their practices and how they are painted in a corner to qualify for the USDA crop insurance programs. So they have to do things a specific way, otherwise they don't qualify in the event that they have a crop failure. And so they are completely captured. Not to mention peer pressure because I've lived through that myself with the neighbors looking over the fence at me is like, you're that crazy hippie cowboy who's stringing out miles of electric fence. You're moving cows every day. You know, there's no way that that's, you know, you can make money doing that. Um, but what I explained to them, cause I'm trying to bring them along with me. I was like, well, if you can double the number of cows, you can run on the same amount of acres. Doesn't that make sense? They're like, there's no way you can do it. I'm like, really, you can, and I'll show you how you can do it if you're intentional about doing it that way. Um, but And then still, I, I'm up against the, the only way that you can effectively finish cattle is on grain. Like, you can't have good, clean, white marbling unless you're feeding them grain. And, and so I'll give them a package of our grass-fed and grass-finished steaks that have that beautiful pure white fat and beautiful pure white marbling, you know, and I, I tell them you can, I mean, this meat has never had grain, go home, cook it however you would cook your grain fed steaks and then get back with me, you know, and they still don't believe it. They're like, there, there's no way this can be, you know, we've eaten grass fed beef before. I said, yeah, but they're probably eating either, you know, um, non-castrated bulls, which are super lean and can be kind of gamey. They're eating 
some crazy kind of cow that they had to hot shot and chase around to get in the trailer before it went to the um, butcher. So you have all the stress hormones in the meat or it never got finished. That's the other thing too, is you have to be so intentional the last three or four months of the life of those, those beeves that you're raising to finish on grass is they have to be on the highest plane of nutrition that they possibly can be on. Whereas if they're just out eating whatever short, dry up, dormant forage that your dry cows are, they're not going to be the, the quality that they could be if you were intentional about feeding them. So that's another one of those things. I mean, the peer pressure of that sometimes is more than people can bear. Yeah, it's it's crazy to think that you would actually show them the result of all the work and effort or the strategy, and they would still be in such denial to say that, you know, either they couldn't do that or that you were just pulling some type of uh, magic trick here and that that's not possible. Right. That's how deep in, uh, deep up their ass, if you want, <laughs> they are. No, you're in, right. In that which is crazy. So um, a, a good question. And these two could be kind of correlated or co-mingled here, but like it's the biggest, uh, are the biggest attacks on ranching um, the ignorance of the average person's uh, nutritional palate or is it politics or is it both? What is the, the final boss, as they like to say, for, for ranching? What's your biggest oppo- opponent? Honestly, it's it's in the rancher's mind. Oh, interesting. That that's the thing that I find is you know because I I'm trying to bring as many of my friends and family and local ranchers along with me, and they are they are afraid of change, hmm. you know. And what I'm doing as far as the direct to consumer is completely out of their wheelhouse, and and they they are constantly worried about the unknowns. And so, you know, in ways for me to pitch ideas to them is, well, let me do this for you. I will market the beeves for you in my program. If you will follow your pro- my protocols and you feed them grass and, and hay only until they get to this weight, then I will buy them from you at a 10 cent over market and then I will market them in my program and they're still afraid to do it. So it's literally a win-win for them, but because they've never done it before, they're afraid to do it. The other thing that's interesting is so many farmers and ranchers are, they're below the poverty line, right? So they may have a brand new truck or a brand new combine, but because their business truly doesn't make money, they are on um, subsidized healthcare. And so when I, I approach them about trying to make more money, they simply can't or they won't because they're afraid that they're going to make enough money that they won't qualify for their subsidized healthcare or they're not willing to, to buy private healthcare. And that's, that's terrible. I mean, I think of that. So you have the, you know, the half of 1% that's feeding this country and a significant portion of the world are afraid to make more money. They're afraid to have financial success because they can't afford healthcare. That's something nobody is talking about. And that's a travesty. 
Yeah, that is. I mean, I you hear that on and you know on common levels with different services and programs, especially like a, you know, like a Section Eight or something like that, where you know a lot of people are like, well, if I don't get a job, then I could just pay dirt cheap for rent, as opposed to going out there and willing to wing it or or carry the the load of that. But I never imagined uh, that example that you just gave there. That that is actually pretty scary. Yeah, and that and that's the thing that I. I hadn't realized until I've had some of these hard conversations with some people that were completely transparent about their finances. And that, that really took me back because, you know, I, my wife is a registered nurse. She works in town and that's what I tell everyone half jokingly, but actually not. She works in town to support my cow habit. And really she works in town to pay our family expenses and to have health care. You know, because I uh, amputated my own thumb on accident, on a ranching accident. And you look at what the, you know, the out of pocket for that was like six or $7,000. Hmm. Um, and that was with insurance. And so you can imagine if you had no insurance and you had to try and pay the actual expense of that, that would bankrupt most people without insurance. Absolutely. So it, it is... It is a need, but it shouldn't be a crutch. And a lot of people are using it as a crutch to basically not elevate their game uh, and more selflessly not, you know, do what I guess God has them doing, which is feed the world, right? Feed the world of good meat. They would rather opt out and say, no, I want the easy ride. I don't want the hard ride. Um, and that's very honorable, your wife, to be able to take that type of slack for you uh, to be able to do uh, the great things that you do. Um, that's amazing there. Um, I, I naturally, so on a political level, though, um, okay, so the, the the biggest attack vector is the rancher's mind. Um, what about on a political level? What type of stresses or pressures or any type of those <laughs> adjectives uh, are coming from politics themselves? All of it. I mean, the engineering was through legislature. Yeah. So um, back in the early 1900s, they passed some legislation called um, the Stockyards and Packers Act. So at that time, you had seven processors controlled 50% of the processing capacity in the United States. And so that's all proteins, um, hogs, lamb, beef, poultry, all of the above. So they passed some legislature because they decided that that was a monopoly. Well, all that did was give big business power to lobby for more legislature to to help them so now fast forward 120 years later right now four major processors control 85 percent of the protein processing in this country two of which are are owned out of overseas so you have a chinese company and you have a brazilian company and you ask yourself so we let big brother through legislature control what happened in processing from clear back early 1900s. And where did that get us? Nowhere. It got us in worse shape than we were then. So that's one of those things where capitalism, free market capitalism works when you let it. And then as soon as big brother gets involved, it only favors big business. So then let's look at the mandatory country of origin labeling, MCOOL. 
and you'll hear about this. So we're, we're ready to write the new farm bill. 2023 is going to be the next farm bill that goes through the USDA, goes through Congress. And I'm on the board of directors for the Delta Rocky Mountain Farmers Union. They were in D.C. last week talking to everything. So we got the report back from our representative. I'm like, so what's being said about M. Cool? And she says, everyone says, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, everything's good, you know, but nobody's making any moves to reinstate it. So a good friend of mine who's over in the San Luis Valley um, in, a, in a, a little hole-in-the-wall town called Sawatch was one of the biggest um, grass-fed and grass-finished beef producers selling to Whole Foods at that time. He was the first Savory Hub. So Alan Savory that I mentioned earlier, Holistic Management Incorporated, HMI, that was one of their first hubs. And they started doing the, the Holistic Management back in the late 80s. He was selling into Whole Foods. And as soon as they repealed that M. Cool Act, that Country of Origin Labeling Act, the purchaser from Whole Foods called him and says, we have renegotiated a contract with a supplier can you reduce the cost of your beef by 40%? So going from 100% down to 60%, um, would you be willing to renegotiate for that? And he said, no, there's no way that I can. So what did he do? He went, he went home and sold half of his finished beeves that were ready to go to slaughter that should be going to Whole Foods right into the conventional market, downsized and went back to focusing on direct-to-consumer marketing. Well, come to find out, all of that beef was all going to come from New Zealand. So they had signed a contract to import, you know, hundreds of thousands of pounds of grass-fed and grass-finished beef from New Zealand and selling it here instead of sourcing it locally like they had been for years before that. The other thing, the other problem with that is when you start looking at some of these um, subscription companies that are, um, you can have it shipped to your door and you look at where they're sourcing their protein, whether it's lamb, pork, beef, chicken, 90% of it is coming from overseas as well. And so we have this broken labeling system in this country that's fostered by the USDA that as long as the final processing and packaging happens in the United States, it can be labeled product of the USA. So my t-shirt, you know, has to be labeled from where it was made. It may say, you know, fabric made in the USA, but final assembly in Singapore or wherever it is, Malaysia. Whereas all of our protein, all of our protein, as long as the final cut and packaging is done in the USA, it can say, product of the USA. So you have consumers who are always like, we want to buy USA, support, you know, American farmers and ranchers. And they look at the packaging and it says right on there, product of the USA. So they assume hmm. because they don't know any better and because the regulation sucks um, that it's from the USA. All that means is it was cut up and packaged in the USA. So why does my shirt have to be labeled from where it was made where our protein, like what we're literally going to feed ourselves and feed our children doesn't have to be labeled as to where it's from. And that's why it's so important to have our meat be labeled with that mandatory country of origin labeling. 
Yeah, that's important. But I'm I'm just gonna go on a whim and take a guess. Sort of like pharmaceuticals, it's because the profit margins in the t-shirt are not as great as the profit margins are on the meat. <laughs> um, now, if if somebody were to say, well, you know, Jason, you know, uh, in New Zealand, they grass-fed and grass-finished their beef and it came over here. Are the two problems there, A, you're not supporting ranchers here in the USA, and B, the meat still has to go through cargo ships and through all this other stuff, which could potentially affect it. Are those the two biggest problems, even if they grass-fed, grass-finished in New Zealand? Well, actually, the biggest problem is is we export yep. our highest quality cuts that are raised in feedlots mm. to developing middle-class countries all over the world and then subsequently import the same amount of low-quality beef mm. that we then grind and feed our kids in their school pro their school lunch programs or we we give out through food banks or we we cook in fast food restaurants and so you're taking the highest quality best cuts you know the most most beautiful ribeyes and we're sending them to china we're sending them to india we're sending them to japan right is that that fancy american certified Angus beef or top choice select, whatever. And then we're importing all of this. Well, from South, if you look at just from South America. So what we'll do is we'll take super cheap labor, right? Huge farms down there where they can double crop and feed those cows, anything and everything you could imagine, ship those to Mexico, background them in Mexico. Then they qualify for the North America free trade agreement, right? Then they come into Texas into a feedlot where we haul cottonseed stuff, we haul corn, we haul barley, rye, bran, whatever, um, to them, feed them there, kill them, cut them in half, ship them to uh, another plant that then breaks them down into subprimals, put them in another truck, ship them to another plant where they cut them down into final cuts, and then send them out to the distribution centers where they're going to go to the final grocery stores. Whereas for me, you know, if that meat has 100 miles on its entire life versus having 7,000 miles like grocery store beef, um, the other thing that I found and that I preach is if you eat food that's grown in the soil where you live, that breathes the air that you breathe, that gets rained on, the rain that you get rained on, you're part of the microbiome of that animal right? Mm. And that animal is part of your microbiome as well. You know, we have uh, an apiary, we have bees as well. And so, so many people buy our local honey and our local pollen, and they use it to treat their allergies. Well, this animal is inhaling pollen, it's eating grass and getting the same nutrients out of the soil that we do when we grow vegetables in the soil or when we walk barefoot on the soil and get our grounding in. And so, Having that local ecosystem is the way that we keep our communities healthy, and that's how we focus on our health and our community's health. And I think that's really important to get back to that. Absolutely. Do you, do you find it crazy that ranchers are more health practitioners than health practitioners are? <laughs> well, my wife and I were talking about that just this afternoon. Um, so much of it is paying attention to your body. Yeah. 
You know what I mean? It, it's not it's not treating a symptom, right? Which is what the standard you know Western medicine does, and the pharmaceuticals want us to do. Is like you have a tummy ache, take a pill. You have a headache, take a pill. You got you know skin problems. Here's this cream. Take a pill. Um, whereas if you thought about it, like the way that we evolved, like I ate this and I felt like shit after I ate it. I'm not going to eat that anymore. Or I ate this and I felt really good. I was super alert. You know, I was firing on all cylinders. I want to eat that again. Um, if you, if people were more intentional about that, we'd all be better off. Whereas now we have all these companies that are making fake flavors, fake smells, fake textures, and putting it in our food to trick our brain into thinking that, oh, this feels good. I'm happy by eating this which is a, it's a dopamine hit, you know, it's, it's a, it's that instant gratification um, by design because it's all about marketing. Whereas if you actually have to take the time to cook your meat and cook your vegetables and stand over the stove and then you, you still have that same reaction, right? You just have to be more intentional about it. So, so enjoying your own roast or your own steaks or your own vegetables or your own eggs, your own milk, whatever, you have that same feeling as far as, oh, this feels good. I mean, I'm part of this, that, but, it, but it takes time and it takes intentionality. Yeah, indeed. And you can, if something were to go wrong, like you said, if there's something that makes me not feel good, you could actually pinpoint what it is as opposed to the nonsense that's in all this other crap where you can't really know what it is that you ate because there's so much shit inside of it, so many uh uh, like Slim says, commodities. Is, is that what Slim says? Injected into the food. Uh, and, and that's another exactly. situation. And you, yeah. And you, if you can't pronounce it, yeah. if you can't pronounce something on a label, you shouldn't be eating it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that, I mean that, that's just the fact of the matter. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the, you know, from everything you were telling me there, especially from that whole, you know, the uh, big brother, we'll call him, coming in and basically saying, hey, go from 100% to 60%, um, kind of has a lot of parallels. And this is a good time to segue into Bitcoin, where it's, you know, centralized networks always have the rug pull, right? It, it, it's inevitable. They have the control, they have the power, and then they make a rug pull, uh, which makes decentralized networks, conversely, um, that much more powerful and that much more, uh, I'm going to use the word natural, but that's because I have a lack of word here. So, you know, it's a low time preference thing. You said this in the beginning of the com conversation, ranching and, and, and grazing cattle. Um, why in a world where you obviously have to pay bills? And I actually asked you this a few days ago, and I think you hit it out the park. So I want you to kind of um, uh, answer it again in your own fashion is why would a rancher then decide to take this Bitcoin? Right. Because a lot of people still do this when they talk about Bitcoin. Uh, why would a rancher decide to give all that time up to trade for Bitcoin and barter for Bitcoin instead of U.S. dollars and fiat? I mean, there's a, there's a lot of things. So that's the thing that ranchers value, right? Is like we have to look at what we use as a store of value. And so oftentimes we are very real estate heavy and big iron heavy, right? And so when you look at the dollars and cents and the dollar figures attached to that, it is it is so scary and it fluctuates so much whereas you have something parallel to that that no one else can control so if you can take a portion of what your proceeds are and what your life you know storage is and put it in something that's multi-generational 
because that's the way that I approach it. If you're looking at multi-generational wealth building that is completely decentralized, it will far exceed the lifespan of the U.S. dollar. It will far exceed the lifespan of my generation and my kids' generation with the potential to use it and leverage in the event that you need fiat in the short term. I mean, so if you look at all the facets of it, and then you look at like crowdsource healthcare, that's the other thing too, that's based on Bitcoin. There, there are so many things that we're building out in the Bitcoin community that, that it, it gives us hope that all of the damn work and all of the hard times and all of the just complete unbelievable disasters that I have endured being a cattle rancher, I can have something that at the end of the day, I'm going to be able to pass on for generations that no one can come in and take, right? Unless they have my seed phrase, I'm taking that, you know, either to my grave or fortunately for me, my wife and my kids are savvy on it as well. So they'll be able to access it no matter what. And so if you look at that, the power in that, the gravity in that is immense. It's unbelievable. And, and as I'm explaining Bitcoin to other uh, farmers and ranchers, you see it in their eyes when they have that aha moment of, oh, shit. This, you know, so many people are like, oh, that, that's that Harry Potter money. Right. You know, that <laughs> magic hocus pocus. Yeah, exactly. Um, and they, they, uh, they have that aha moment. I'm like, so, so think of it as an IRA that if the dollar goes to zero, you will still have. Hmm. Whereas if you're and the dollar goes to zero, you're out of luck, right? right? Or if big brother comes to your financial advisor or whatever the financial institution that you're banking with, and they put a gun to the president's head and say, freeze all of this stuff or take all of this stuff to zero, lock them out of it, they can do it. And then you have nothing. Whereas here is something that they can't do that with. You know, and you can put it out into cyberspace. Granted, I put mine in a, in a, in a cold wallet, right? Yeah. So it's safe, right? But you can literally take it, put it out into cyberspace. And as long as you can access it again somewhere else, you don't have to take physically anything with you. You go somewhere, get back on cellular, dial it in, download the wallet, whatever it is, access it, put in your seed phrase, and, and you're back in business. Your livelihood, your life savings, you, you still have it. Whereas if it was in the bank, it's gone. Or if it's gold in your pocket and you have to go through a port, you're not going to have it when you get to the other end. So that's one of those things that it's so exciting for me. And I'm like so many people, I wish I'd bought when I was first exposed to it yeah. because my world would be in a different place today. But I am glad that I started buying when I did and that I was uh, awakened to the potential of accepting it for payment for beef, because that's truly value for value. You know, and I was, I was just uh, answering some DMs before we started of some people. So like, are you still accepting Bitcoin, even though it's so it's, you know, it's down so much today. I'm like, hell yes. I'll take your $18,000 Bitcoin all day. It was way better than taking, you know, your $68,000 Bitcoin, um, 
So for me, it's, it's hedging on that, you know, that I know the value is going to go up. So why would I not accept Bitcoin when it's, you know, at a low knowing it's, it's, a, it's cyclical and it's going to go up again. Yeah, it's uh, you. You nailed that to perfection there. Um, it's unruggable technology, right? Like so, like you said, it's it's one of those situations where I could only shoot myself in the foot, and as long as I keep my own secret, nobody else can take that secret or extract it from me. Therefore, nobody else can ever displace me if they ever wanted to. Um, and it makes your um, the attack vector on on yourself uh, much more expensive. Right. So like I always like to give this example where it's like if I know you have ten thousand dollars in a safe in your house, well, I may actually risk it and go into your house and try to steal that ten thousand dollars. However, if you have all your Bitcoin inside a, you know, cold storage on the ledger, basically, uh, I could go into your house. I could end up getting the wrong wallet. I could not know your seed phrases. I can't get in. You may have a gun. You may have a dog. Right. Like this expensive now scenario where it's like, oh shit, it's not worth to go steal Jason's Bitcoin because it's just harder to do. Um, yeah, it, it's once in a lifetime thing. There's a gentleman named Eric Kaysen who I like to quote a lot as well because he always talks about is we um, accidentally, because cryptography is military grade weaponry, accidentally they gave us the lightning bolt to take out the gods, right? And now we will never give that lightning bolt back and we have the power to be able to destroy them. And we're actually doing this in real time. And uh, they're scared shitless, man. They're absolutely scared shitless. <laughs> That's the thing. You know, so many people are like, well, why hasn't the government crashed it yet? I said, they've been trying since, since its inception, since you could mine it with your, you know, whatever, your desktop or your laptop or whatever, they have been trying. Fortunately or unfortunately for them, it is built to the fat to the point where it has been unable to break. Right. And because it is built block by block by block, to go back to block number one and mess it up, you gotta undo every single block until then, which is nearly impossible, right? In actuality, it is impossible because the, is, yeah. the, the computing power and the energy that it would take to do it is inconceivable, right? And that's why it's so strong. And and when I when I tell them that, they're just kind of like, you know, it's the jaw drop, um, mind blown. You know what I mean? I said because every every superpower in the world. When it went from guys just talking about it, you know, back and forth on the dark web, they already knew about it, right? And they immediately started to, to hack it and tear it down because they realized just how powerful it is. There is no, there's nothing stronger. Right. And, um, and there'll and never just, be. Yeah, you're right. It just blows my mind. And, and, and to be part of it and to realize the power of it and, 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 you know, be storing a significant portion of my uh, beef proceeds in it is um, it's just a really exciting place to be as well. Yeah, it really is. And we talked about it earlier in the conversation, but you nailed it uh, a few minutes ago where like it actually brings back real value for value bartering uh, for the last six months or so. I've done nothing but earn my keep in Bitcoin, meaning that I don't go to the exchanges. I don't uh, dollar cost average, even though trading $30 for Bitcoin is a nice feeling. 
Um, I basically decided six months ago that I'm going to mine Bitcoin and I'm going to earn it through my electricity bill and through my energy. And then I'm also going to work for Bitcoin. So freelance video, you know, value for value podcasting, uh, consultation on some people, certain things. And um, it's been magical. It's been incredible. And it feels good to the soul because my first intention now that money is out the way is um, help, right? And, and providing value and helping. And it feels good to the soul. And another conundrum that I figured out over this six months that Adam Curry actually nailed on the head a, a few days ago when I heard him talk is, is that when you actually let the other party determine the value that you have given to them instead of telling them what that value is, more often than not, it's much higher than you would anticipate, right? And you put a ceiling on yourself in the traditional fiat world when you say, well, my podcast is only worth five bucks or well, my podcast is only worth 20. When it's just like, hey man, give me whatever it is that you think you got from me. And most people are gonna say, well, here's 100, here's 200, here's, you know. And the last six months have truly you know, I've been a Bitcoiner for about three years now, but the last few months have really, really changed the way I feel about Bitcoin, but also about my value and what I can give to the world. And it's been amazing. The other thing with, with that is when you get on the Bitcoin mindset, when I approach something, I'm like, this is an eighth of a Bitcoin, or this is half a Bitcoin, or this is a Bitcoin. And it completely changed. You're not worried about the dollars and cents because that doesn't really matter. I mean, the reality is it doesn't matter. And we we do a lot of bartering. I mean, I, I am blessed to live where I am. We have orchards and vineyards and gardens, you know, and raw milk dairies, so many things that you can trade and barter. And that's kind of the way this area has been. And so the idea of Bitcoin just makes it that much easier. And like you said, I mean, to allow people to reward you for your work, because really that's what that's what it's about. It's like, what is your value in this? And once you get off of the fiat standard and you approach things like that, the sky is the limit. Hmm. And you open so many new and interesting conversations that you wouldn't have had otherwise. Um, and, and, you know, it was just like when I started in regenerative ag, I didn't mind being the weirdo. It's the same thing in the Bitcoin conversation. I don't mind being the weirdo who's like, <laughs> hey, you know, you know, Michael Adoshi can set you up with this, you know, and you can do this or, or you know, Annalise with Ibex, they can set you up and do this. It's one of those things where it, it's magical. It's truly tangible. And when you put that wallet in someone's hand and you help them transact in it, um, you just see that the possibilities start to work in their mind. Yeah, absolutely. Community is a big part there that you just nailed in the head that I didn't bring up. Um, met some of the greatest people, uh, including yourself and some longtime friends, um, just because we have this one thing in common, which is we believe that this, you know, I, I don't like to call it an asset, but that this this tool, this this weapon as certain mm -hmm. is something that we can actually liberate this world with and all the pain and suffering that so far generations have had to endure, especially those after 1971, as we all like to say. <laughs> um, Jason, uh, one last question that kind of is a two-pronged question here for you. Um, you've made all that sound so easily. You're obviously well-versed. You're obviously well-understanding. Um, I want you to... The first part of the question is, is 
Um, just kind of let me know like how Bitcoin interjected, like when you first found out about Bitcoin and, and how that little journey went. And then the late, uh, the second question, which is more later on is, is, um, how, how does one, including yourself, how is it going orange pulling other ranchers and being able to talk to this about it? If you could answer those for me. Right. So Bitcoin was about $1,200 when I was first orange pilled. And um, a family member of ours is a Bay Area financial guy. He was working for a firm that was doing asset management. And he's like, dude, you got to check this out. We're getting ready to have a big run. He says, I've been projecting it for the last six months. He says, now's the time to get in. And, and I'm like, what? <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, and he's he, he's super excited about that because because he is all in on like the theories behind it, like the greater good of Bitcoin and why it will save humanity and all of that, which was a little lofty for me at that time. It was a little hard for me to digest and he was a little over the top. But so what that did to me is Google search Bitcoin, um, read Satoshi's white paper and I was like, oh my gosh. So there is, there is, practical implications and there is true you know god-esque implications as well and there's more to this and then i saw it run and i was like oh boy i missed the boat i'm you know and then the crash and i was like oh boy i dodged a bullet you know <laughs> whatever but it was in the back of my mind and so then fast forward to 2019 and um, he, he approached me again. He says, so what do you think about that? I was like, you know, so two years later, essentially, I was like, well, you know, what do you think? He says, well, I think we're going to do, I think we're going to be well on our way to another bull run. I'm like, well, how can I get exposure without actually taking cash out of my pocket that at the time I didn't have? right? Because we were really just starting to crank on our beef business then. And so if I told my wife, hey, I wanted to take $12,000 and buy this Harry Potter electronic money, she'd have been like, uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what I did was I had an IRA from when I was an underground coal miner and I called a financial advisor and I said, hey, let's buy you know, $12,000 worth of grayscale uh, stock. Sure. He's like, okay, sure, cool. And he's a Bitcoiner. Um, so he did. And then I saw it start to go. And so I said, let's do another 20,000. He's like, I completely say that you shouldn't. You know, we're, we're, we're saying no more than 1% of your total assets. I'm like, so is it my money or your money? Are you going right. to do it or not? I'll take my money across the street. Okay, so we bought another 20,000. So then I said, so then, so it's running. And I'm like, we're going to capitalize on it. So I called him. I said, let's do another 40,000. He said, well, so what happens when it goes to zero? I'm like, well, you can tell me you told me so. And I won't have sold it. So I actually wouldn't have lost anything, but I would have learned a lesson. So let's do it. And he's like, okay, you know, it'll be end of trading tomorrow. It'll be done. So it hits 68,000. And I called him up and I said, do you think we're at the peak or what do you think? And he says, I think we're at the peak. He says, I don't know who told you what, but this is a pretty strong trade. I'm like, well, I found a skid steer 
that I'd really like to have, I want to sell some of that stock because I'm pretty sure it's at the peak. Everyone said it was going to go to 120, but I'm pretty sure we're there. Um, and he says, well, you have to pay your early withdrawals. You have to pay taxes, blah, blah, blah. I said, no big deal. So we cashed some of that stock out and I bought a skid steer and a trailer to haul the skid steer on. So I tell everyone that's the skid steer that Bitcoin bought, right? Nice. Cash, free cash, right? And so um, that is a story that I'm able to tell and share with ranchers when you come to that value for value idea, right? And so it was about that same time that I started thinking about accepting Bitcoin for beef. And so when it crashed out, you know, and it's been sitting around 20,000 since then, a little more, a little less, I was like, well, I wonder how many of my customers will pay me in Bitcoin. And it's interesting, some of my hardcore Bitcoin customers pay me on strike. Yeah. So they, so they give me the option to cash it out into Bitcoin. I mean, you know, buy Bitcoin and put it in cold storage or transfer it into my bank account, which is super handy for me because depending on where I'm at in cash flow, I may need to pay a bill or I may put it in another wallet and then put it onto my device um, for cold storage. And so having that conversation with my fellow ranchers and showing them the value in it and how easy it is to transact. So we, 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 I, we sell bulls at a consignment sale because we raise registered Angus bulls. And I was talking to one of the other consigners across the alley about Bitcoin. And one of the white haired ladies piped up and says, so you know about Bitcoin. I'm like, well, I'm no expert, but you know, we accept Bitcoin for beef and we, we, we trade in Bitcoin and I, I hold Bitcoin myself. And we also, I'm exposed with, you know, um, stocks in grayscale stock. And so I know a little bit about it. She says, would you be interested in talking to our investment club? And I'm like, I don't know if I have enough knowledge, but I would love to come and talk to you guys about Bitcoin. Well, come to find out, they call themselves the um, Fancy Ladies Investment Club. (laughs) So it's like 67 to 89-year-old white-haired ladies, retired ladies, bankers, ranchers' wives, um, school secretaries, small business owners, runs the gamut of experience as far as finances. So she hit me up and she says, you know, our meeting is on this date. Can you come talk to us? We'll feed you, you know, we'll have drinks for you, whatever. I said, sure. And I forwarded them all Satoshi's white paper. I said, this is homework to give you a little background. And and if it's overwhelming, no big deal. We'll talk about it when you come to the meeting. But if you can digest it, it'll give you a good basis of like the why, for, and how, and even the reality of their algorithm and how it works. And so I'm, I'm nervous as heck, you know, cause who knows how I'm going to get hammered. Right. And so we get all these ladies together and that was the, it, it was two and a half hours of talking about Bitcoin because some of them, like the retired presidents of banks, they know they have the heartburn of transaction fees and and how long it takes for settlement and international trades and all of those things. So they were totally turned on by that peer-to-peer 
and nearly instantaneous on the Lightning Network with minimal fees or the even lower fees on chain, knowing that the transactions can be done within a number of hours, depending on what the traffic is. And they're like, oh my gosh. I mean, we could have saved our bank millions of dollars transacting this way. I said, and the fantastic thing is, is it's a series of numbers and letters. There's no names attached. So talk about magic money. You know what I mean? You have all of the value of it and none of the bullshit, none of the big brother, none of that stuff. So that was a fantastic opportunity. And I've been sharing that with everyone that'll listen because it's that easy, right? Like you you just have to plant that seed. You have to give them the orange pill. So some of those ladies, like they're like, well, my son is doing this and my grandson is doing this. I'm like, well, when you leave here, I want you to text them and say, hey, son, or hey, grandson or granddaughter, are you buying the dip? Or, you know, whatever. The lingo that we who transact in Bitcoin and understand it, that's just, you know, hey, are you, you know, um, dollar cost averaging, whatever that happens to be. So they would know like, oh, my gosh, granny's crazy. She's been orange pilled. She knows (laughs) what we're talking about. And so that was just so much fun. Um, to talk to them and, and, and then also give them all the examples of what, how to download a, a wallet and how to transact and just how easy that is. Um, and there's a couple of them that have then called me and I walked them through downloading a blue wallet and how to put you know Bitcoin on it and how to transact. Because what I recommended for all of them, instead of sending a $20 bill to your grandson or granddaughter for their birthday, have them download a wallet and send them $20 worth of Bitcoin. Um, because you always know that you're going to have that store of value. But if the dollar goes to zero, you can use it to start a fire or wipe your behind, but that's about <laughs> it. So, yeah, no, that's the awesome orange pulling, especially identifying like their pain points, especially as bankers and financial people and, uh, you know, aligning those pain points with how, Bitcoin is perfect money and solves that. Uh, while we were out there in Bluffton, I had uh, one of the um, uh, community members there, one of the workers, Eleanor, a uh, fantastic person, uh, started talking to her about Bitcoin on you know one of the days. And on the next day, I already had her downloaded Moon and sent her 50 bucks. And I was like, here you go for the value that you provided to me. Um, let me just give you instantaneous money. And like you said, that jaw drop moment of like, that's it? Like, it's here? I'm like, it's there forever until you spend it, until you butter it or whatever you want to do uh, is extremely magical. Very fortunate in my lifetime that we're able to have this type of tool and this weapon. Um, well, that was the amazing thing at our conference that we had. We had the, the Beef Initiative Conference here in Colorado. Mm-hmm. At Odell, we, we uh, onboarded 50 people with amazing. a moon wallet and everybody got to transact in real time because they were projecting... Um, the, um, oh, I don't remember what, what the, the block, um, anyways, you know, where you can see the transactions in real time yeah. on the screen. Yeah. So literally you're seeing the dollar amount and the transactions come across, boom, you know, boom, 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 boom. So onboarded 50 people and they all transacted in 14 minutes. Amazing. So that's just how... I mean, 
it, it's it is amazing. It, it's unbelievable. Had I not been there, like on the ground, seeing it happen, I never would have would have realized just how easy it was. And of course, Matt O'Dell is like, he's a fantastic educator. Like he breaks it down to where everyone can understand. He doesn't overcomplicate anything, you know, and that, and that's the other thing with, um, with, with all the speakers we had. I mean, it's like, they're fantastic educators and, and I'm just so honored to know them. And then they are so open with communication and education. And that's, that's a big thing that drives me to, to educate and preach about what we do and why we do it. Because if those of us keep that knowledge to ourselves, it just, it dies with us. Absolutely. And so it's just so important to put it out there. Yeah. Yeah. Back to circling back to the beginning of the episode, just being a conduit of information, just making sure that we don't hold it and we just share it. Uh, Jason, you're doing uh, God's work with the land. You're doing Satoshi's work <laughs> in Bitcoin. Uh, you're, you're, we could have these conversations forever and I hope this is not the last one. Uh, please let the listeners know where it is that they could follow you, where it is that you want them to go any call to action. Absolutely. So we're on Twitter, beef, bees and Bitcoin. So that's at Jason Rick, J A S O N W R I C H. We're on Instagram. We're on Facebook. Um, and then, of course, we have a very Spartan Google business website, Rick Ranches, W-R-I-C-H, uh, Ranches website. And it has our phone number, email address, and all of that stuff on there. Currently, we're serving all of Colorado, and we're serving um, eastern Utah because so much of my priority is that shake your rancher's hand. You know, I say that. I post that. I tag that hashtag, you know, know your rancher. Um, because I want to do those deliveries and shake those ranchers hand, you know, you just shake your ranchers hand because then we have that, that intimate relationship. Um, whereas if you're ordering online and it shows up in a box and something's not raw, right. You go on Google review and leave a nasty, you know, keyboard warrior thing. Whereas I want to have that communication. You got the direct line with me. If something's not right, we'll make it right no matter what. And that's, that's super important to me because, that's how it used to be the village model. Like you knew the, the baker, you know, the candlestick maker, the butcher, the blacksmith, all of those things, you had relationships with all of those people. And that's, that's really important to me still. Yeah. And that's really huge. Jason, I'm glad I got to shake your hand and, and the value you've passed on to me is amazing. Um, folks, listen to Jason. If you haven't been paying attention this whole episode, you might not, you might have no hope in, in your life because there was so much value here. Uh, but hopefully you go out and shake your local ranchers hand, reach out to Jason on Twitter, ask him any question because he is that guy and he will follow up with you. Um, I appreciate you good sir so much. And like I said, hopefully this ain't the last time. Thank you so much for everything that you do. I really appreciate you. Thank you. All right, listeners, you guys know where to find us. Podcasting 2.0 is the place. We like Fountain. We like Breeze. Those are the best places, the easiest to onboard, but we want to keep this decentralized. There's many other apps out there that support Podcasting 2.0. And we're Podcasting 2.0. You can share some value. Conversely, if you didn't get any value, then you don't have to share anything and you can get this value for absolutely free. So go check us out on there. Uh, for 4K content, you can check us out on Bitcoin TV. We want to support the Bitcoin standard of media. We don't want to support the legacy algorithms. If you haven't got to the Bitcoin standard of media, then you can check us out on all those other places too. Just do those good old fashioned things that flirt with the algorithm, like share, subscribe, and that'll get us to the top and we can get some signal out to more and more people. I appreciate y'all as always, and I'll catch y'all next week. Later. <laughs>